0: Traditions are sacred in the South. The Masters, SEC football, and fried chicken anytime. Now, add one more. Pull up a chair, fix your glass, and get ready for some good old fashioned Southern charm. Welcome to Success in Sweet Tea, a podcast dedicated to your success in business, lifestyle, and relationships, all with a shot of Southern magic. And now, Coming to you from deep in the heart of the Southland. Get ready for an engaging conversation with your new favorite Southern couple, Doug and Vicki Miles.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Doug Miles, and with me here today is Vicky Miles, my wife, and we'd like to welcome you to another installment of Success at Sweet Tea. We appreciate you tuning in.
2: And our guest today is a man with many fascinating, and until now maybe unknown, interests with talents, uh, along with his successful career as an attorney and a distinguished judge. He's an avid sportsman, scuba diver, boat captain, author, lover of history, just to name a few, and we're so happy to have him today, the Honorable Frank McGuire III, or as his friends and family know him, Trippy.
1: Yeah, Trippie is a native of uh, the state of Alabama and a longtime resident of Covington County and off Alabama, more specifically, home of the Rattlesnake Rodeo. And uh, one good thing about Trippie is that uh, Trippie is easily identified. He has his mind and his sights on three things and that's his love of his faith, his family, and his eye on community service and service to. The youth of the area.
2: And so we're excited to hear Trippy's stories today. And uh, let's just go ahead and get started.
1: Yeah, let's all grab our glass here, Tripp. And uh, we'll toast uh, success of sweet tea. Here you go. <laughs> Cheers. I'm going to have a little bit here.
2: Just enough to get started. I
1: know what that was.
2: So, Doug... Uh, I think you were gonna talk to Trippy a little bit about how in the world did he wind up in Op? Yeah, that was one,
1: th- <laughs> th- one thing that we wanted to know: is how does a, a guy with uh, all of your credentials make it to Op?
0: Well, it had to do with a woman, <laughs> but it started out with a best friend. Uh, Jimmy Jeffcoat um, came to Auburn as a freshman when I was a freshman there. He was from Op and I was trying out for kicker for the football team, and Jimmy had been an All-State quarterback at Op High School and played quarterback in the high school All-Star game. A mutual friend introduced us, said we had a lot in common. We did. We became fast friends. I started going to Op. I'd never even heard of Op. Um, Started going to Op to visit Jimmy when he'd go home on weekends, and uh, eventually met my wife at uh, a fraternity brother's wedding at the reception and um, she looked dangerous.
2: <laughs> I thought, uh,
0: you know, I'd work on asking her out, I did. We clicked and uh, ended up uh, getting engaged. I was uh, working in the trust department for the bank in Birmingham, at that time the First National Bank. And my wife's, well, my wifes to be father started recruiting me to come to Op and open up a law practice. And so he basically recruited me to Op from Birmingham. And, I had never lived in op until I returned from the honeymoon. I moved my stuff down <laughs> to where we were going to live the week before the wedding and became an op resident when we came back off the honeymoon.
1: So you were an Opram grad and you went to where? T- went, to went, law school. Uh,
0: went to Cumberland Law School, that's part of Sanford University. Uh, went to op, opened up a law practice and it went from there. The rest is history, I never look back. <laughs> Op's my cup of tea, speaking of tea.
2: Yes, absolutely. And since you've been in Op, you've actually become, well, you have a reputation as being known as the Op Historian, so your love of history certainly came out while you are in Op. How did, how did all that get started?
0: I was born with a love of history from, I think, the moment of birth. I started asking questions, uh, no, not, not at birth, but I mean, <laughs> since I was a child, I just always loved history, I ate it up. Um and it just grew from there. Uh, I, I practiced law, of course, that was my prime focus because that was my, my occupation and profession. But anytime I could, uh, I would try and do historic research. That was kind of a, a hobby, that and kids. I love kids, uh, but history, when it came to reading books for pleasure, it was going to be books about the Creek Indians or uh, the Creek War, early Alabama history. It's, you know, American history I'm very interested in, but when it comes time for me to read something I want to enjoy, it's going to be about Alabama history.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of history, actually. Alabama's been a state since
0: 1819, 18,
1: 18, 19, a long time.
0: And, you know, we all studied Alabama history in fourth grade. Absolutely. That was the curriculum. Yes. And that's when my love for history really took a jump start.
2: I bet your fourth grade teacher would like to know that, trip. Did you ever tell She him? knew it, I'm sure, <laughs> you know,
0: because I just ate it up. Yeah. I mean, especially when we started studying William Weatherford, known as yeah, Red, Red Eagle. Yes. Uh, that really whetted my appetite because my first hero was Tarzan. <laughs> and um, I've heard you do one, a Tarzan. <laughs> one, yeah, wanted to grow up to be like Tarzan, still do. Uh, <laughs> but when we started studying William Weatherford, Red Eagle, he was a real-life Tarzan. Uh, with the bravery and the strength, uh, the love of nature, and uh, he's just always been one of my heroes.
1: So you, you you're an outdoor person too, uh, an outdoorsman is what we would call you now, and uh, you you're an adventurer. Uh, you do all kinds of uh, things that. Uh, are done, you know, outside amongst all the elements, and you know, in the water, out of the water, in the caves, out of the caves, <laughs> uh, in the woods, out of the woods. Anyway, you've had a, you've had a lot of experience in that. I know you love it.
0: Well, there's nothing like being out in God's creation, mm-hmm. and uh, I just love Mother Nature. Love being out in the woods. When uh, sometimes when I had to clear my head, I'd just go for a walk out in the woods and listen to the birds, observe the wildlife. Just hear the sounds of the forest. Maybe it's the wind or uh, a hawk, crows, birds, whatever. Um, if I see a snake, so much the better. Or an <laughs> alligator, even better.
2: I was going to say, now you've been known to go allig- a- alligator hunting. A
0: time right, or two. right. And let me, let me specify for our viewers it's not really killing alligators, Tom. I was spotlighting alligators or seeing alligators. I mean, it's just a big thrill. Uh, when I was a kid, I was fascinated. I was afraid of things that would kill you. Uh, My mom instilled in me a fear of snakes. (laughs) And then we lived in Mobile, you know, when I was in my early years, and there were sharks. And sharks could eat you up, and alligators could too. So as a child, uh, those were really scary to me. But fear turned to fascination and then respect. And now I just love seeing alligators what few times i get to see them love seeing sharks been diving where there's sharks that come up if you're going to scuba dive you're going to see sharks so that's just part of it but it's just a a fascinating thing and when i'm when i see snakes alligators or sharks to me that's very relaxing because it means you're really with nature
1: it really doesn't matter to you whether you have somebody to go with you to scuba dive, even though it's safer for you, you just enjoy it regardless of whether anybody's there with you or not.
0: There, you know, so often in my life, sometimes there were kids in the neighborhood, sometimes there, there were not. When there were not, I'd just go out in the woods and entertain myself. Climb up in a tree, stay up there, you know, listening, observing things, and um, just learn to entertain myself. Uh, I don't always have somebody on the boat with me. I'll just entertain myself on the boat. Same thing goes for diving. You've got to be really careful. But when diving first started out, when I was studying as a second grader and weekly reader in the summer series, uh, this diver, I can't remember his name, but he'd go by himself because they're just one of the divers. Now, I hope my dive instructor's not listening to this. Uh, (laughs) Is that Jacques Cousteau? Right. I'm about that old for him to have been my instructor, but I got certified to dive in 1985, and and you don't do it by yourself. if you're doing it in a safe environment, in, a, in an area you're very familiar with, with it's like your backyard, uh, I, I think it's okay for me. Now, not everybody can do that, but I spent the first nine months of my life underwater.
2: Yeah, <laughs> That's did. true, Tripp. And Trip. it,
0: was, it, it was in the dark, you know, couldn't see. So, uh, but I just, I'm just really at home underwater. Started out snorkeling as a child, as a first grader, had a little frog mass, they call them, and a little... Snorkel that had a thing up here with a rubber ball that would seal it up when you went underwater. That was my first snorkel. Those were real popular in 1960. But uh, it went from there to more advanced snorkeling and then finally to scuba diving. And it's just there's no way to describe scuba diving. It's another world. It's a beautiful world. Everything is just as it's always been. Uh, the the reefs. Talking about the coral reefs the fish it's like you're going back in time except it's the present day but it's almost like your body's in suspended animation yes, like everything's slow real slow unless there's a shark then things scatter and then they come right back real slow and it's it's you're really in another world and there's just no way to describe it it's you're you're weightless it's kind of like being in space except it's a beautiful underwater world and it's just absolutely gorgeous the fish are Friendly, <laughs> and um, you're down there with Mother Nature, with marine life. It's just a fascinating place, a whole new world.
2: And you mentioned your childhood. Uh, I believe Dolphin Island was a place you frequented when you were younger. It,
0: it was. Uh, my grandparents, uh, when they opened up Dolphin Island with the bridge, I think that was 1954, I got my first sunburn there at Dolphin Island. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> Mama soaked me in vinegar that night in the bathtub. But anyway, <laughs> Uh, my, they subdivided the land. My grandfather and grandmother bought a lot, uh, built a house there in 1963 and that's where we'd spend a lot of the time in the summer. Uh, it was about a mile from the beach. We would drive to the end of the street and cross over a quarter mile of sand dunes to get to the beach. But the other thing about it was there was a swamp a hundred yards behind their house where there were water moccasins and alligators. So uh, I had the best of both worlds. I had the beach and then I had a, a swamp that I could go on with my cousins and explore.
2: So I guess those moccasins, Doug, is what got him started with rattlesnakes. It, it
0: really, it really is.
2: And it then started
0: with water moccasins.
2: Rattlesnakes. Uh, you really did like things that were scary. You were not kidding well, us. Well, it,
0: it didn't. Yeah, and it was scary to begin with. Uh, I remember in fourth grade uh, a water moccasin ran right in front of me. It was so big that I thought it was a python. That was my first thought, a python. It ran right in front of me. I was cutting off as a skate route to the water. I was walking along the creek. but And I, my knees were knocking 45 minutes later. But, you know, like I said, fear turned to fascination and then respect. And I had a cousin that loved snakes as much as me, and we would spend hours in the swamp uh, just watching the snakes.
1: And it doesn't bother you to go grab one, does it?
0: Well, yeah, well you gotta be right, careful with the right tools. And, right, and the gotta right have situation. the right tools. Yeah, uh, snakes. When I'm out in the wild in nature, I just I let them be. I just like to watch them and let them be. But of course, for the rattlesnake rodeo, I'm a snake handler and pick them up. But you don't just freehand. You you pin their head down gently, and then pick them up.
2: So, who taught you how to do that? I well,
0: mean. a friend of mine, Jay Michael, uh, the Op JC, started the Ralph State Rodeo back in, I think, the 1950s. Actually, J.P. Jones started it, but I believe he was a JC at that time. Um, and of course, it's a big event now, but uh, Jay Michael, a good friend of mine, was JC's president, and uh, he actually taught me how to pick him up. And there's not much to teach, you just, you know, he would pin the head down with the snake stick, and he told me, pick it up, you know, told me how to do it, get your best grip, and if something goes wrong, all you do is just, you, you drop the snake. But now nothing's going to go wrong if you're, if you're holding it right.
1: I don't like the way they stab, a
0: distinct odor.
1: <laughs> they, you know, they, they really do. You get it when you, we've been the op to Opt. Yes, we, area, have. we have. And you walk down on the football field where they have it, and it's, it's just, there's an odor down there, and it's from the, the well, snakes.
0: Yeah, they put out a musk. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you don't want to get it sprayed on you because then you're going to smell for a while. But fortunately, I've not been sprayed but once. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's really, that's my one time of year to really commune with, with snakes. As weird as that sounds, I, mean, I just love reptiles, love nature.
1: It's a, a lot of fun to go out on a really, really cold night and uh, take the flashlight and look for alligators and you see those eyes and those eyes you don't expect them to be orange which is the color you see. And uh, then you look up, you know that danger is there. Then you look up and the sky is just beautiful. It's, the sky is just and star, star everywhere and right. it's beautiful. Usually it's really cold mm-hmm. and uh, those are some really good times.
0: Yeah and we've done that before, of course, Absolutely. Uh, but uh, yeah when you're out in the country uh, near a swamp, no lights, like you said, you can see everything in the celestial bodies and um, beautiful, gorgeous. Even in the summer, you know, it's uh, Margaret and I have been down to that particular spot and had sleeping bags, put them on the back of the pickup, watch satellites go by, falling stars, things like that. And I used to do that a lot. That's something else I started out doing as a child, was um, observing the stars. In sixth grade, we studied astronomy. My sixth grade teacher um, really drilled it into us. Uh, two of my best friends had a telescope. We'd go out every night with that telescope. Now I have my own telescope to look at them with. But...
2: Well, you've also shown a lot of young people nature. You are also known for taking uh, groups of young kids to caves and all kinds of uh, dangerous places. Actually, uh, I don't think I'd like to go on that tour, but I understand you have a lot of people who do enjoy that.
0: Well, I, I never outgrew young people. That's one thing I never outgrew. And, and um High school student council. Loved student council. Uh, My minister, well, I was church youth group leader as a senior in high school and loved that. When I was in law school, my minister made me take over the teenage prayer and share group that they had on Wednesday nights. And I don't have time for that, but he made me. And uh, I found out I I could work with young people really well and loved them. Always have, And that's continued. Throughout my life, I mean, I guess one of my big passions is being around young people. I just love the young folks; they're well, special. you've been a
1: mentor for the young people of OP for many, many years, and you're—you know—you grew your family there. You raised your kids there. Uh, your daughters. Uh, you met Margaret. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about about your family. It's been a
0: all right, Well, let me go back. Uh, my friend Jimmy Jeffco that I referred to, he's Dr. Jimmy Jeffco now, although he's retired. But uh, he was the youth minister at First Methodist Church several summers. And when I would come down on weekends to visit, you know, I'd, he'd be doing things with the youth. And I was there with him and just fell in love with kids before I even moved on. Mm-hmm. They were just great All-American kids. The ones that came to Auburn, all the guys pledged my fraternity, Fiji by Gamma Delta, and there was something special about the Op kids that came to Auburn, and I noticed that in law school when I'd go visit Jenny. And uh, when I finally decided to move to Op, right before we got married, I made a decision then that I was going to work with the young people. I, I just wanted to do that, and, uh, but anyway, uh, Margaret and I dated, got married, moved to Op, and I started practicing. She started teaching, And we didn't have kids for four years, but I became the advisor to the Op High School Interact Club, which was sponsored by the Op Rotary Club that I was a member of, and did that for 28 years, and took them on a lot of trips uh, to Panama City, uh, to the Senior Bowl in Mobile. I'd take them canoeing at the Springs, and it grew from there. Now I've got several places, you know, I got kids at my church uh, that are like family, and um, I love taking them on what I call adventures or excursions out in the nature and to show them history too.
2: And speaking of kids in history, you also do an event every year where um, you go to the schools and you do some, uh, I think you do some Indian history there as well?
0: Yeah, we, um, they study, the fourth graders study Alabama history still and I've got a PowerPoint on what they study, particularly the Creek Indians. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, William Weatherford was just always, I was fascinated by William Weatherford, and so my love of the Creek Indians grew from there. But I do a PowerPoint on on the Creeks, um, the Indians in Alabama, the mound builders, the ones that built the mounds that predated the tribes that we know today, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Cherokee, and Creek. Uh, and I, I, Take, you know, each year, I'll take a group to Fort Mims, where the big battle occurred. I take my local kids to some mounds uh, on private property that the owners don't mind me taking them to. Um, but yeah, they have Pioneer Day. Ms. Gafford, a good friend of mine, Heather Gafford, started that, I don't know, eight or ten years ago and asked me to be an Indian. So I'm, I'm William Weatherford. I speak <laughs> to the kids and tell stories about my life as William Weatherford, which are fascinating stories and um, keep their attention, and then I'll go to the fourth grade classes uh, at least four times to give them a PowerPoint, because the PowerPoint's a little over two hours long, so we divide it Mm -hmm. up into segments, and I've never had them get bored. Uh, Because Alabama history is fascinating, Uh, the history of the Indians in Alabama. It's hard for us to realize today that our state was not sparsely populated. There were tribes here, and we were densely populated with Indians, lost civilizations. In fact, our tribes that we know of today, the four tribes, you know, the mound builders predated them, and there were mounds all over Alabama. And our tribes in the 1800s and the late 1700s could not tell you where those mounds came from. There was no written history to pass down to the next generation, so our modern tribes Knew nothing about the history of the mounds. It was some unknown people, but the mounds were all over and some of them are magnificent. You know, we've got some at Moundville, south of Tuscaloosa. We've also got some in the Ten- Tensaw River Delta in the swamp um, at Mound Island, the Bottle Creek Mounds. Um, took, I don't know how long to build those things, but they're fascinating mm-hmm. to look at and to think that those people could do that. And, you know, we think, well, they were simple people. Well, they really weren't. They were extremely smart. I mean, you think of all they did, how they made arrowheads, made their own pottery, their own clothing. They were extremely self-sufficient, wonderful hunters, very close to nature. uh, Very, a lot of admirable characteristics that they had.
2: You make me wish I would have paid more attention in the fourth grade. <laughs> I missed well, a lot.
0: Come to one of my presentations, and I'll, I'll catch have to up do on
2: that. Um,
1: there's something that we both missed. I know I missed it. What did I you don't miss? Know if, we, if you missed it or not, but uh, I'd never heard of a town named Poly. P- right. P o l e y Poly, Alabama, and. Um, Tell me about Poli. I want
0: to know. Okay, police. so but we're we're fast forwarding now. Yeah. Uh, past the Indians. Uh, well, the earliest Poli is a ghost town outside of Op.
2: So now we've gone from Indians to ghosts.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay.
0: And uh, anyway, when I was at Auburn, one of my fraternity brothers from Op, Jim Dowling, was going into architecture, and. I went home with him one weekend. He took me to this beautiful mansion that was abandoned, the Shepherd Mansion. And it was it gave me an architectural tour of this beautiful home. Uh, he said this was the social center of this area. Well, it was out in the woods. I mean, there was nothing there except this home. And it was out in the middle of nowhere. And he said, this was the socials. I thought, oh, come on now, really? (laughs) But he was right. It really was. And there was a town built around it called Poli. Um, And the more I I write for the newspaper, the newspaper three years ago asked me to write a weekly historic column because they knew I loved op, op history. So I did, and I eventually started writing about Poli and got into it more and more until I got a real fascination or the place, I became a fanatic about Poli. And so then I started going down there in the woods and finding some of the ruins left of the old town that is way back in the woods. Uh, the Shepherd Mansion is now gone, where my friend took me. But Mr. Shepherd is the one, he was one of the part owners of the town of Poli. It was a lumber, sawmill town. Uh, and actually it had been around <clears throat> since 1854 that we know of now. That was because uh, John Wesley Woodham and his wife Amanda moved there from Echo, Alabama, near Ozark, probably a two days journey at least. They came there to; he was going to go to work in the sawmill. So, 1854, two days away, come all the way to this new town to work at a sawmill. Must have been really well established already. Op didn't come about until 1901, so Poley predated Op by half a century. And, um, you know, after a while, they thinned out the forest. Poli flooded uh, twice and eventually became a ghost town. Folks moved to Op. Op kind of came about about that same time. But a lot of history about Polly. Mrs. Shepard, who lived in the mansion, uh, I started doing research on her. She wrote books of poetry uh, that are actually published and she would go around the southeast of the United States reading her poetry at large gatherings. She was very famous. I didn't know that. And you you wrote,
1: uh, or you begun a book regarding, about her.
0: Right, the Shepherds of Polly, because they were a fascinating family. Right. uh, Extremely smart people, and moved into what was nothing but a longleaf farce from from Montgomery, (laughs) uh, and being involved in Montgomery society and culture and to move to, Poly out in the middle of the woods uh, was quite an undertaking for them, but they did really well. And um, Anyway, fascinating family, and I've written a lot about them for the newspaper, and yeah, I'll, I'll eventually publish it.
2: And speaking of your writing, that's a great opportunity to talk about your latest uh, historical novel that you've written, a, a fiction novel, I believe?
0: Yes. Um, there was a murder that occurred in 1932,
2: Okay, so it's based on some uh, historical events. Oh, it's, event. it's real life. Thank you for being with us for this episode of Success and Sweet Tea. Join Doug and Vicky in two weeks for part two of their chat with Trippy McGuire and learn more about his newly released best-selling book about a 1920s flapper from a century ago and so much more.